0: I used to see being gay as uh, something of a curse when I was at school. People homophobically bullied me a lot. Now I see it as something of of a gift. I would not change being gay for the world. I used to have this picture in my mind of like a light switch, straight at one end, gay at the other. And I I fantasized about being able to flip that switch. There is absolutely no way I would ever flip that switch the other way. Although I spent twenty years of my life thinking the opposite, the last ooh, fourteen years or so, it's I, I've I've never ever.
1: Hi I'm Adam. Hello I'm Joan. Welcome to Pride and Progress,
2: a podcast that celebrates the progress of LGBT plus inclusion in education. In each episode we speak with LGBT plus people and allies, we hear their stories, discuss what they're doing to make educational spaces more inclusive and celebrate the power of diversity.
1: Hello and welcome to Pride and Progress. This week we are delighted to welcome David Lowbridge Ellis to the show. David uses he, they pronouns and is Director of School Improvement for Matrix Academy Trust in the West Midlands. He has written and spoken extensively on many aspects of education, especially curriculum and assessment. Inclusion is a recurring theme in his writing and speaking, and he's here today to chat with us about the barriers queer people in education
2: face. David, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Good morning, David. um, I'm glad that you've been able to join us today. Um, you're one of those people that I've kind of followed from afar, like on Twitter. We've never really spoken before, but I've followed for a while. Oh, I? so it's you, is it? <laughs> That'll be me. Um, and I think we were meant to be at a diverse educators event together, but it didn't oh, work out. Yeah. And I might have completely made this up because sometimes I get people's Twitters confused. Mm. But are you a, a big fan of James Bond? Uh, that's putting it mildly.
0: Yeah, uh, I am a massive James Bond fan. Are you about out yourself
2: as a James Bond fan as well? I'm gonna be honest and tell you that I've never seen a James Bond film, so maybe you could like sell it to me. Oh, wow. Why should I watch him? Okay. And where should I
0: start? So we recently had a, a couple of our lesbian friends round who we've known for for some years, uh, but one of those uh, one one of them uh, she she loved James Bond as a child, but had been. Uh, turned away from it by a lot of homophobic bullying, actually, um, which I know we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, As a teenager, she loved the Pierce Brosnan movies growing up, but her wife had never seen a James Bond film, so I was posed with this exact conundrum recently. And I was like, where do you begin? So we went with Daniel Craig's Casino Royale, which I think is a really good starting point. However, however, it does sort of spoil you for some of the others because then we made the foolish decision of following it up with... Roger Moore's final opus, 1985's A View to a Kill, which tonally is such a contrast with Daniel Craig's James Bond films. I Honestly, I had no I I don't know what they thought about it uh, by by the time we'd finished. But actually, um, they both joined us in watching a couple of other Roger Moore Bond movies the other day for a charity event we were doing. And uh, they, they I think that they, they, um, she's definitely a convert, having never seen a Bond
2: film until the last few months. So, yeah, probably start with Daniel Craig's Casino Royale. Amazing. Um, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And who would you like to see as the new Bond? oh no I hate that question
0: (laughs) I hate that question because as soon as I get an idea in my head I'm just like I get really stubborn and if it's not that if that doesn't happen then I get really disappointed so I try not to commit to that but I I really wanted for several years uh, I really wanted Riz Ahmed I think it makes complete sense to have a um uh have a, a person of color play james bond someone whose ancestry goes back to a commonwealth country it just makes total sense in my brain
1: and well, what is it there seems to be like you know james bond on one hand is not the most heteronormative filmed mm. franchise in the world but on the other hand very very queer in camp what is its queer appeal i've read some of the things you've written but why do you think it attracts kind of queer audiences so sort of passionately as it does
0: i think there is the sexual orientation side. I think he has lot, James Bond himself has lots of qualities of a gay man. Um, how, many, how many straight men would be quite proud about their ability to identify a woman's perfume on first sniff um, and be so fussy about ordering a drink at a bar? So there's, there's, there's so many of those stereotypical gay traits about Bond, but I think more to do with gender really. I see James Bond from the novels and, you know, from Dr No's 60th anniversary this year, Sean Connery's portrayal of of Bond. I see it as almost quite non-binary in some ways. I think Bond encapsulates both masculine and feminine qualities the way that a lot of other leads of action narratives uh, doesn't, doesn't have. So I think he's fairly unique in that regard. And I I know I've got to know over the last couple of years, I I started writing and created a website around James Bond as as a bit of a lockdown project. Although work was manic, I was having difficulty switching off. So the best way to switch off is to switch on to something else that's going to occupy my brain. And I've got to know uh, lesbian Bond fans, bisexual Bond fans, trans Bond fans, non-binary Bond fans, asexual Bond fans. So it's kind of created a really nice community, really. But together, we're trying to make people see James Bond from a different angle,
2: to paraphrase, I am what I am. I I definitely have the same thing where I switch off from work by doing other work in other spaces. That definitely works for me. I I can do an 80-hour week and then spend another... 20 hours researching and writing about James Bond but that's that's the only way that I can switch off sometimes. I am I'm really terrible at when, when we get talking to people about things they're passionate about I kind of just keep going I have to remind myself what we're here to talk about today. Yeah totally. <laughs> so if we go back to education I wonder if you could mm. tell us how you got into education how that journey was for you. I'll be honest I never
0: had in mind being a teacher i was in my final year of university i'm a quite naturally anxious person and i like a plan so i was in my last year of university i remember going to the careers office at the university of birmingham and going through the list of what last year's graduates in the english department did because my degrees in english language and literature i was like "Mm, what am i going to do and i don't recall ever seeing teacher listed down there but Um, My mom had actually trained to be a teacher uh, later in life um, after having me and my sister and then uh, having some other jobs. She decided to train as a teacher. My dad has worked in had worked in education as well. They're both retired now. So there was sort of a bit of an idea there, but I'm also quite and my pupils and my colleagues never believe this. I'm also quite a naturally shy person. I'm actually uh, maybe I'm one of those introvert extroverts. I don't know but i'm a naturally shy person or at least i was when i was at university i didn't kind of do the whole university lifestyle while i was there um you know paid off with a first class degree but i didn't do a lot of the things that people associate with the freedoms of university so I decided I would sign up for a PGCE course and I, at least I had a plan in mind so I could get my head down and complete my, math, my um, undergraduate dissertation, which incidentally was on Batman as well. So I've always tried to bring my personal uh, obsessions into my academic work as well and I decided to join the teacher training course my mom did say my mom did voice skepticism she was like you know you aren't the most outgoing person in the world maybe you should be a driving instructor instead but being as I hated learning to drive that was definitely a no-no so I did the PGCE first time I was ever in a classroom and I ended up standing in front of a group of pupils was because a cover teacher didn't turn up I was there on placement and as soon as I stood up and by any objective judgment the lesson would not have been a success but I managed to hold the attention of a group of year seven pupils for an hour and I think the bug bit at that point And I've always loved being in the classroom since then. So that was 2003 going into 2004. So I've been a teacher of English since then. Uh, I did progress relatively quickly in my career. I was a senior leader within five years of joining the school. And that wasn't because, again, I had any career ambitions or goals to do that. I just turned up and did the job that I thought I should be doing. It turns out I was doing it a bit better than some other people so I got promoted year on year um, and then ended up being assistant head teacher and I was largely in charge of a sixth form for uh, five years as well as some of the whole school responsibilities and then deputy head teacher and then um, head teacher and uh, director of school improvement so that's where I am today. Wow,
1: you've held a massive range of roles and we'll get into some of those a bit more in a second. Um, We're gonna said in your introduction that you write and speak quite extensively about a range of issues Mm. in education. Um, I was very lucky to hear you talk at the LGBT Ed launch event a few years ago. And what kind of stayed with me um, was kind of your like refreshingly uncompromising (laughs) approach to ensuring that LGBT inclusion was an absolute priority within schools and the curriculum and you spoke so passionately about that really stayed with me um, till today so can you tell us then you've held loads of leadership positions quite a range there can you tell us a bit about your ethos as a leader and the ways you ensure that lgbt inclusion remains a priority within schools
0: i would say uncompromising is a really good word to use there um I, as far as my approach as a leader goes i i always treat everyone in an organization i'm leading exactly how i would want to be treated and um sometimes that means uh make um being uncompromising in making sure that they feel comfortable in who they are uh, the school that i've spent uh the majority of my career at when we were restating the values reformulating those values the first one that we decided upon in collaboration with the children was be yourself and i know that there are a lot of queer school leaders who don't feel comfortable being themselves is getting better in that regard but I model that openness I'm I've um you know apart from the first few years when I was uh a a young teacher and I was were and I was in a the, the school was very different to what I I spend most of my time in now the school was in an Ofsted category, it was quite unstable in terms of leadership, I didn't know if people would have my back. So I know what it's like to be a closeted teacher, and it's exhausting being a closeted teacher, you want the best from everyone in your organisation. And if people are wasting their mental faculties on having to hide who they are, they aren't being the best teacher for the pupils in front of them. So that's definitely something I model. I do, I you know, I do work with some colleagues who are queer and aren't as open as I am. But as a leader, obviously, I don't want to force them out of the closet. But I know I have to create a climate where they can be open if they want to be. And many as a result are. And as a result of that, a lot of the pupils are. So there's a direct correlation there, I think.
1: And that's a really interesting journey to go on from, I think, perhaps how a lot of us feel when we start our careers, perhaps positive or perhaps um, reluctant or unsure about how to go about it. And now you're in a position where you're kind of, I know you facilitate, um, you're on the LGBT ed, uh, program, you, you yeah. um, facilitate on that and those types of things. So what were the things that allowed you to go from that starting point to now being a really um, proud leader and advocate for LGBT inclusion? What things helped you in those stages to develop that confidence?
0: I think I was developing more confidence in my private life. As I've said, I was quite a shy person. And I, in, in my mid, tw- I did have a, I've written quite a lot about this. I did have a real tough time mental health wise in my early twenties. And a lot of that was as a result of being closeted. And I just couldn't deal with that. And um, I, I think I, I get to a point when I'm frustrated at my, uh, at, society or myself where i just have enough i uh, decided enough is enough and it's either going to get better it's not it's not going to get better unless i do something about it and it did help as well that i met the man uh, when i was 26 years old when i uh, who is now my husband uh, so we've been together for oh gosh i'm going to get this wrong and he's going to tell me off if he listens to this but i think it's 14 years so i think i think that's right don't don't show we can edit <laughs> uh, we a different one. date if we need to <laughs> that's fine it's fine it's fine let's let's record alternatives now I, I, I 13 was, 10 a, 12 our wedding 11. anniversary i've gotten our wedding anniversary wrong so many times in the we've been married seven years we got married on the i'm gonna get it wrong now 28 no 28th of march 2015 which was a year to the day after same-sex marriage became possible which was not planned it was a happy coincidence it's just so happened that the library the library Birmingham where we're getting married had that date available so we decided to set it there and then in hindsight we were like oh that was clever uh so sometimes I've said it's the 29th of March and he hasn't been very happy uh so I've I've managed to get it right today darling um I'm trying to remember what your question was now I've got completely sidetracked as (laughs) usual I always do i just love to use oh, into that panic about oh my god i'm, di- <laughs> the I'm digging the hole now i'm going to dig myself <laughs> out so in terms of the steps that i i i took i um i it was actually at the end of a senior leadership meeting one day where the head teacher of the the school i was an assistant head at and i'd only been an assistant head for a few months we were just kind of as you, as you do at the end of a senior leadership meeting it's 5 p.m people want to go home but people are just still milling around kind of anything planned at the weekend sort of conversation and then the head teacher just asked me David do you have a partner I said yes and his name is Anthony and that was the first time I'd ever actually been out at work and after then things started formulating in my head and we had a senior leadership conference to kind of plan for the next academic year and I decided that we needed to do a lot more as a school to be lgbtq plus inclusive and i'll be honest i had to really state my case as to why it was really important for us to do this and i think that's really important for whatever you're trying to change in schools there's a lot of literature on the power of why and i firmly believe in it you can get you you will you will have only very limited impact in changing anything in education if you do not explain to people why it is important to do this. I thought I was just really stubborn and I didn't do anything anyone told me to do unless they explained why I needed to do it. But it turns out, and I ended up doing my master's degree in change management, and most of the change management literature concurs that that's the same for most people. Tell people why it's important to do this and people will get on board. So I launched into (laughs) at this leadership conference while we were planning our priorities next year, the big why. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but it's the same kind of stuff that I say whenever I do a presentation on this. We need to make sure that all of our pupils feel comfortable in who they are. And if we don't, then very horrible things can happen. And I sometimes draw on my own experiences of poor mental health. Uh, when I was growing up, um, you know, there's there's some really horrifying statistics, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, but not everyone is, you know, so a quarter of LGBTQ plus youth have seriously considered killing themselves. And in schools, I tend to find, and I still find this really, in schools which don't have as inclusive a culture, and even with schools with inclusive cultures have queer pupils who for lots of different reasons still don't feel comfortable coming out in their time at school but you tend to find that a lot of queer pupils overachieve in school or do the complete opposite and underachieve they develop oppositional identities and being successful at school is not a part of that identity and so there's actually if you, you know if, if you're in a school where the senior leadership team unfortunately i've never worked in this climate but if you're in a school where the senior leadership team are only driven by exam results you've got your why there <laughs> because the queer kids are probably going to be quite disengaged in a lot of them anyway and the ones who aren't disengaged who are the opposite who are overachieving uh they, they might be at risk of serious burnout actually so you need to do it for those reasons So I always come back to why. So after we did, I introduced a lot of stuff at our school. I thought it was really important for it not just to be me, because you don't just want it to appear like a one queer person crusade. You need to get the straight allies on board, because let's face it, they're going to be the critical mass. So once you get those on board, things really start moving. But particularly the last few, last several years, five or six years, didn't extensive work on curriculum design now rather conveniently Ofsted have thrown the spotlight on the what and why of the curriculum Uh, and since March 2017 Amanda Spielman started talking about it and if a school doesn't understand why they have chosen particular content on their curriculum then they are in trouble when Ofsted turn up so I was already doing quite a lot on curriculum design. I'm a, I'm a co- complete curriculum geek. I'm a geek about many things, but particularly curriculum design and the what and why of curriculum and, and why we choose particular knowledge to teach to pupils. So it's often said, it's often quoted, I think it was Matthew Arnold in the 19th century who said we should aim to teach the uh, the best that has been thought and read. And the provocation that I always throw in whenever I lead a session on curriculum design is so did the straight cisgendered white men do all the best thinking and writing and if the answer to that question is yeah i think so then clearly you're not looking hard enough so
2: that's where i that's where i come from now David you mentioned there a couple of things that came up in your article in the leader publication so for example Mm -hmm. you talk about challenging staff to be representative when reviewing the curriculum you talked a little bit there about making LGBT everyone's responsibility and one of the things that I noticed when I saw this that I hadn't really thought about before is that you said asking your network manager to unfilter gay words Mm -hmm. and that genuinely hadn't crossed my mind before
0: If we're talking barriers to inclusivity in schools, and this goes for, again, anything that you want to change in schools, sometimes the barriers are really small things and it takes a long time to spot those small things. Uh, I've lost count of the amount of times that a barrier to getting something improved in schools is the availability of glue sticks. Seriously, glue sticks. People hoard them people i I don't know what happens to glue sticks but for some reason if the glue stick check i would urge number one piece of leadership advice to any any school leader check what's going on with the glue sticks okay i'm being slightly facetious here it's not facetious (laughs) oh i know have you been in a glue stick situation honestly
1: i well i just think like if we get to a point where our currency collapses glue sticks will become the new currency of our country certainly in schools because it's just like gold dust
0: i know we we we're definitely keeping Pritstick and other brands are available going. <laughs> anyway, back to um, vocabulary. Yeah, if I realised when we were, when we started to really um, build more queer stuff into our curriculum. I realized that a lot of the children were doing work for history or geography or whatever and they were typing in words and it just kept so gay and lesbian and whatever it just kept coming up filtered all the time I was like this is crazy if we want pupils to be able to use the words in the right way they need to be able to read the words in appropriate contexts and obviously it was filtered with the best of intentions because obviously as we all know those words can be used to wound people but you you can't I do know I don't think any school does it at the moment but I have known schools in the past who have actually banned using the word gay and as a linguist that that terrifies me because any, any any linguist can tell you that if you ban a word you make it so much more socially desirable in certain contexts so don't ban these words get children to use them in
2: the correct way what I really like about the article and um, when I was reading it is that so many of the things that form so much of the conversation around kind of queer inclusion in schools, you make it sound so you, you, you make it clear how simple it is. So your third point says delete a few words from the uniform policy. And really that's all it takes. Just delete a few words to make it inclusive. And then your fourth point mm-hmm. says change the sign on the toilet door. And the conversation around toilets is so huge and it doesn't need to be because. Some school buildings, it's more complicated, particularly if you're an old school building. But in many school buildings, it literally is that simple. And I think the article makes it really clear because if schools do those simple changes first, then they have the energy to focus on what's the more complicated work, which is the curriculum work. And it is changing the kind of language in your school. What
0: motivated me to write that article was conversations with senior leaders who were always manically busy Let's be honest, it's a it's an intense job, head teacher, deputy head, assistant head teacher, we're all, we're all wrestling with having to prioritize constantly, every minute of the day. And it's so easy for LGBTQ inclusivity to fall down that list of priorities. So I wrote that article with that audience in mind because I knew it was for a leadership publication. Um, I was slightly influenced by nudge theory as well which I'm really a, a massive fan of you know the idea that you need to if you want people to change you've got to make it easy to change. It's actually easier to change than not to change and so some of those things were inspired by that and I'll it's it's great that you thought that they were really really simple things but i have sat in in meetings where people have debated toilet signage endlessly (laughs) just put the word toilet on the door (laughs) you know it's it's that simple um but yeah no i'm really i'm it's really great that you you found some of those things resonated
1: the toilet thing is so interesting isn't it the amount of debates on twitter like what can we replace it as so people say toilet they they desperately want this prefix like accessible toilet or what? no it's a toilet it doesn't require that much explanation you know that is accessible to everybody um but you know like like joe said that's a great article david and what what we and you know, i know a lot of people really appreciate about appreciate about you your generosity in sharing resources and uh, really practical ways of exploring lgbt plus inclusion in schools and in curriculum and um, there's a couple of resources i'd like to talk about um, a few years ago, obviously, probably more in secondary schools than primary schools, there was this big move towards knowledge organisers, and a lot of us spent a lot mm-hmm. of our half-terms and summers creating them, but you made this amazing queer knowledge organiser, which I know you've kindly shared on social media with people, we can yeah. share in the show notes, can you tell us a bit about the inspiration for it, what's used in it, and how perhaps others could use that to inspire their curriculums?
0: I'll try and keep this brief because I wrote a 5,000 word paper for Leeds Beckett University on this knowledge organiser because I felt the need before putting it out there in the world to explain how I'd come to what the decisions about what to include because all knowledge is partial. And as we've said, we don't just want our curricula to be, I use this phrase all the time, probably every day, stale, male and pale. (laughs) We don't just want uh, and that, you know, and straight and cisgendered. so what I, st- what I decided to do was on one PowerPoint slide that's best printed on A3, because I did have to keep shrinking the font down, on one PowerPoint slide, what is the knowledge that I wish I had been taught at school? and that was what I set out to do. I didn't quite manage to put everything on there. And that's the thing, you're right, knowledge organizers, I'm not, they're still popular in many schools. And I, I think a knowledge organizer, when it's used well, is a fantastic tool. Like anything, it can be used really, really badly. But I, re- I realized that one of the big barriers to making our curriculum curriculum more inclusive was that teachers themselves, including queer teachers, didn't have the knowledge to be able to teach what we wanted them to teach and unpick some of those big misconceptions. So, for instance, one of the boxes on the knowledge organiser I decided I could not lose was the lists of different species of animal whose scientists have observed having same-sex interactions. Because one of the massive misconceptions that underpins homophobia is that it is the same-sex attraction is unnatural well actually there's nothing more natural especially if you come to giraffes for instance there's a brilliant article by dr adam rutherford about this the evolutionary biologist and he he cites all the evidence for why most male giraffes we would consider to be gay or at least giraffes who have sex with giraffes so i wanted that on the knowledge organizer so i I would have found as a as a pupil if my biology teacher had just thrown that even in passing into a lesson it would have made me feel so reassured in a way that i wasn't unnatural that i wasn't abnormal that i wasn't abhorrent that i wasn't disgusting because those are the you know that's that's the 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 thought processes we internalize as queer people growing up And I thought I don't. And this is what motivates me. This is my why for why I do what I do. I don't want any pupils to go through what I went through growing up. And so the knowledge on there is guided by that principle. It's almost like I wish if I had a time machine, I could go back and I could give myself this knowledge, which has all been completely self-taught. I have never had anyone, even at university, there was a queer lit option, I think, but I was too scared to choose it because I was in the closet at the time. So that's no reflection on the university because they, yeah, they were a bit more progressive in that regard. But it, I've never formally studied anything to do with queerness. So all of that knowledge I've had to accumulate myself. And I know a lot of queer people say the same. So I just thought it was the most efficient way of trying to share that knowledge. And it does have its limitations. So, for instance, it's got a box on there around Christianity and uh, what the Bible actually says about homosexuality, which is actually naff all. So, <laughs> and I got one of the RE experts in, in my school to to go through that with me just to make sure that I had it 100% accurate. Um, there's nothing there about uh, what the Quran says about homosexuality, which, again, is naff all. <laughs> but... So I had to be I had to be quite selective in what I included on there. But I think and I have updated it a little bit over the years. But a lot of people have said that they actually use it with pupils in
2: school as well, which is really, really nice to hear. I think those things, those few examples that you shared there are the source of the shame for so many people. Mm. Um, And I think about kind of where unpicking where my shame was built. And it was built in those misunderstandings or misconceptions. And actually, two of the ones that you just shared were were big in my life um, in this misunderstanding about religion and around what the Bible actually says around homosexuality. But that other one, I'm I'm really fascinated by that kind of queer behavior in the animal kingdom because so many conversations i remember having um particularly in kind of religious spaces when i was younger and people would say that it is unnatural and that you have to look at the animal kingdom to to be able to see that it is unnatural and actually you're you're so right that's just not true and and i would i would encourage anyone who's interested in that i listened this weekend to an episode of getting curious with jonathan van ness and in their most recent episode, they talked to a scientist whose kind of whole work is around queerness within the animal kingdom. And it is, it is mind blowing that misconception that is so widely spread. And I think what you're talking about in this knowledge organizer and, and that work is just challenging that and, and giving people what is the actual truth rather than the kind of misunderstandings of knowledge that are passed down to us. I think especially, uh there's so many nice things in there that either
1: like just plant that seed or challenge or disrupt, like you include the Kinsey scale, you include like a sort of chronology of gender constructions, I think just planting that with people, like you say, if we just had that brief insight for one moment as a young person, God the difference it would have made to our upbringing, so to have something like that that students can refer to, or also it gives staff a bit of confidence, because things like the Kinsey scale, for example, perhaps not many people are familiar with that, but it just introduces a sense of fluidity and troubles that binary.
0: It blows my mind. I'm slightly obsessed with the Kinsey scale. I actually picked up a, um, from a, for, like for only a few quid, at a, a secondhand bookstore, a copy of the first edition of Kinsey's report from 1948. And it amazes me that people don't know, even if you don't know the name Kinsey, but that, that misconception that sexuality falls, sexual orientation falls very neatly <laughs> into those boxes. And I think that's incredibly liberating for people, and especially if you build it into your PSHE curriculum, it should be should be one of the statutory bits on the section relationships education. But that's a that's a whole discussion for another time. Uh, but it does blow my mind that that is still, and I don't know whether it's because it's not it, it, it's not well known. I think some people just don't want to hear it sometimes. And again, we could get into a whole discussion about binaries and wanting to put things in boxes and how this is all systemic and related to capitalism and all that. But I think some people it's actually, it's just less effortful to put things in one of two boxes than not to think deeply about something. As educators, isn't that our job to make sure that not only that pupils are thinking, but that teachers are thinking as well. I've stood up in a lot of staff training over the years and said, you are paid to think. That is what we are as educators. And that means thinking about why we're teaching certain things. That means wrestling with really difficult concepts and translating them in a way that children are going to understand. For me, the Kinsey scale is, I'm glad you picked up on that example, because I think there's essentially, I I think the knowledge organiser, I built it around eight or nine fundamental concepts.
2: And that, for me, is definitely in the top three. I think it is more, it's more effortful. And I think what. What we're asking teachers to do, I suppose, is to unlearn things that were taught to them. And I think mm-hmm. that's a challenge. Um, and the, the Kinsey scale does that. The, the example around what the Bible says is asking people to unlearn what they've been told. And the same thing around the animal kingdom example. Um, there's, there's this video on YouTube that I watched a long time ago about this. And it's this man who reverses the controls on his bike. So when he turns left, the bike turns right. And when he turns right, the bike turns left. And he learns how to ride this backwards bike. And it takes him a while to learn it. And then when he returns to go onto a, a normal bike, it takes him so much longer to unlearn what he would taught himself about how to ride this bike the other way around. And I always think about that because I think unlearning is, is so much more effortful than learning. And that's why I think some of this is, is challenging for teachers, um, because we're asking them to unlearn things that they've been taught for, for such a long time.
0: I'm resisting the urge to go into the voice of Yoda from Star Wars at this point. Oh, hell with it. I'll go. Anyway, you must unlearn what you have learned. There we go. Trying not to turn this into an
2: episode of the in Inbetweeners. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, go. I mean, the, the other resource
2: all kind of... Um, Suggestion, not
1: way to talk about, and it kind of goes back to the idea of unlearning. So you spoke recently in the most recent Diverse Eds um, live event, the virtual event, and you gave such a simple, nice way of the way teachers can challenge language in the classroom by using a Frayer model. Um, obviously, Frayer models are quite common in English and some other subjects, but I know a lot of teachers aren't familiar with them. So maybe you could talk us through like how Frayer models can be used and how it can help us unlearn what we might, what what teachers might perceive certain words to mean.
0: Some of the best Freya models I've seen used are actually not in English lessons, but you're absolutely right. English teachers tend to use them more, and particularly if you're a fan like I am of the work of Alex Quigley, who is amazing on all aspects of literacy, really. Um, So a Frey diagram is essentially a way of making sure that you use all the different... um, channels, I suppose, in your brain. I'm not a cognitive scientist, but we've all had to uh, upskill ourselves. So apologies to any cognitive scientists listening to this, but essentially that you're using words, you're using images, you're using everything. I'm not invoking the old visual auditory and kinesthetic, if anyone was in education when that horror story was uh, prevalent. uh, I was training when all that was kicking off and thinking, what the heck are we actually doing here? Uh, but uh, yeah, that's enough about that. Um, a Fre- so if you Google Frey diagram and if you put your subject in, you'll see, you'll be, you'll be guaranteed on Google Images to find a picture of a Frey diagram related to your subject. So that's probably easier than me explaining it. However, a Frey diagram usually is split into four boxes. So you have the word in the middle, which could be gay, for instance. And then what goes in the four boxes, whenever I've done this across a school, I've allowed the subjects to choose the boxes. So it's almost like a kind of pick and mix of what they decide the boxes are for their subjects. And that tends to get more subjects to buy in as well. But for I tend to go with an explanation in one box, not a definition, because a definition sounds to me like a dictionary definition. And actually dictionary definitions don't really help a lot of the time. So an explanation in very everyday language and then you have some uh, an, ex- an example of how that word is used in several sentences, which is really important. I think that's possibly the most important box on a Freya diagram, because how many times have we told children what a word means, but then we've not used it correctly in a sentence? So with gay you would you wouldn't um, you might have a sentence uh, my best friend has just come out he's gay something like that you know something like that but then that also leads you on to what the examples are and the non-examples so I tend to have a box for examples of things that are gay in this instance and things that aren't so in my aunt box we would probably have you know dropping your mobile phone and shattering the screen is not gay however teenagers will say that is gay if they drop their phone you know dropping food down yourself as you're after you've just got dressed to go out is not gay but lots of people might use that dropping you know dropping your food on the floor is not gay so there's the non-examples and then of course you've got the examples so that's where you can really start teasing apart any misconceptions and you can have, you know, in the version of the Frey diagram I use for this, I have photographs of people who are gay. But also in the explanation box, I also have a note about how kind of limiting that word can be for a lot of people. So although lesbians sometimes prefer the word gay, I've got some lesbian friends who prefer the word gay, for instance, than they do lesbian. You know, it can kind of stress the privilege that um, m- men have. It, within a queer community so you can kind of get into that a Frey diagram when i use them in lessons i've never done it effectively in less than 15 minutes so it's a time commitment but if you choose the words that you're going to that are going to potentially lead to problems later down the line and you're going to have a lot of misconceptions around those words it's definitely worth spending that time on those words rather than just you come across a word in a text and say oh this means that." And invariably, the kids don't write it down because the teacher doesn't give them time to write things down. So a Freya diagram is putting the brakes on, approaching a word from multiple angles so that it stands a much greater chance of sticking in children's memories and being able to be used. think that could also be and whether you have or
1: not David please let us know but that could probably be quite effectively employed in staff training as well because when you're looking at the language of LGBT for example you know perhaps the acronym letters are pretty ubiquitous but there's so much other language that's not so do you think that's something we could use with staff or for, you know 100%
0: I'm actually doing it tomorrow afternoon with a group of uh, trainee teachers funnily enough I'm actually going to start the session by asking them to fill in after modelling what a Frey diagram is, uh, having a, uh, getting them to have a go at filling it in to kind of check their understanding, already, um, I will say every time I've done staff training sessions, people have n- uh, people have not understood as much as I thought they were going to. Even with you say a standard acronym like LGBTQ plus, you get to the Q part <laughs> and that's where the wheels come off, or you know. Think of
2: it positively. That's where you could have a really interesting discussion. I think, kind of listening to you talk this morning, it it makes me genuinely excited that people like you are in leadership positions in schools because I think it's really powerful to have queer educators in the classroom, LGBTQ plus people teaching. But I think there's a, a kind of special power to having people in leadership positions, and we spoke about this a little bit with Catherine Lee earlier on in the series. What do you think the value is of having queer people in leadership positions in education?
0: I think it's incredibly important. I've uh, worked with the Department for Education and LGBT ed on their programme to try to actively get queer people into leadership positions. I'm not sure what the funding situation is with that at the moment, but there is a there is a current cohort. And I coach some people as well to try and get them into leadership positions. And quite a few people have now from the first cohort gone into leadership positions it's incredibly important because the people at the top of the organization are the people who are going to do the prioritizing going back to what we said earlier senior leaders are incredibly busy and well there are lots of very well-meaning senior leaders who would like to do this but they've just got so much other stuff to do and unless you've got a a um, less senior colleague who is like a dog with a bone, which I've always been, to be honest, I've been that person, the person who manages upwards, <laughs> who um, kind of doesn't let it go. <laughs> and um, and t- until you know, unless the, you know, someone can explain to me why this isn't a priority, then I think it is a priority. And I'll listen. But I think this is a really pri- good priority. This is a top priority. And I usually get my own way. So, but it's really important for senior leaders to prioritise this. And unless you've got someone on a senior leadership team who is going to champion this, it's really difficult to make a big impact.
1: And what you just said really resonates, that sense of managing up or just being like something mosquito in the air type thing, isn't it? Sometimes trying to drive change. And I've said it that way in the past. What advice you know we have a lot of listeners that are at different stages of their career but sadly perhaps not too many in leadership if people that aren't in leadership what can they do to try and drive that change obviously the why is a really important aspect of that and obviously your knowledge that leaders are so busy and they've got so many of the priorities what are the the quick wins or what are the you know, perhaps quick wins isn't the right word but what are the effective things people can do to try and make sure this change is being driven
0: I'm always in two minds about this. And I've written from both perspectives. Yes, I think it's really important to have set your sights on changing the culture of an entire organisation. That's really what we're talking about. There's a there's a change guru in education who says that if unless you set your sights on changing the culture, you are not changing a school, you are just tinkering with it. On the other side, Anything you can do to chip away at homophobia, biphobia, transphobia is enough for whatever stage of your career you're in at, the, at that time. Anything is better than nothing. And if that means you're teaching a poem and you mention that she's, a, le- she's a, um, a lesbian in a relationship with a woman, and how might that affect our interpretation of this poem? Or you're a maths teacher and instead of, because there's wordier and wordier problems in maths papers nowadays in secondary, I think in primary as well, but the the the, the family in the maths puzzle um, is not necessarily two mums, sorry, it's not necessarily a mum and a dad, but it could be two mums or two dads or whoever, then that's, you know, there's nothing to stop you doing that. The only thing that you might be going through your mind is that, oh, if I bring this up and then a child says something like, I think that's wrong. You need to know that the school are going to absolutely have your back in dealing with that. And if the school doesn't have your back, they've got bigger problems. And if they don't have your back in that, then, you know, they really need to to get with the programme.
1: I think keeping that why in front of your mind when you know it's that yeah. being comfortable being uncomfortable thing isn't it but having that why is kind of your the thing you cling on to when you feel that discomfort absolutely it's been brilliant to talk to you this morning David and we're really grateful for how much time you've given us but also for sharing so generously um it feels like a mini CPD lesson this hour conversation there's been so many like practical tangible things people can do tomorrow in their lessons. so thank you so much for sharing those um I know you've listened to quite a few episodes of the podcast previously, so you'll know what our last question is, but what for you is the best thing about being both an LGBT teacher, but also an LGBT leader?
0: I used to see being gay as uh, something of a curse when I was at school, feeling ostracised. And, you know, obviously I wasn't out at school, but people homophobically bullied me a lot. I mean, let's be honest most people are homophobically bullied at some point, whether they are queer or not. And that's always something I bring into staff training sessions, that homophobic bullying affects everybody, not just the queer kids. But I saw it as a curse then. Now I see it as something of a a gift, and I hope this doesn't come across as trite, but I would not change being gay for the world. I used to have this picture in my mind of like a light switch straight at one end gay at the other and i've i fantasized about being able to flip that switch and i think this is partly because i grew up in the age of section 28 (laughs) and our government were margaret thatcher and the conservative party were putting forward the view that homosexuality could be promoted, and we needed to protect our children. And it, I think that kind of formed the that mental picture of it being something that could be a choice, and you could you could flip that switch. There is absolutely no way I would ever flip that switch the other way. Although I spent twenty years of my life thinking the opposite, the last ooh, fourteen years or so, it's I, I've I've never ever wanted to flip the switch the other way because it gives me an insight into people who are not privileged in society people who to paraphrase and hopefully not mangle too much Pierre Bourdieu um feel the weight of the water as we swim through life we don't just you know we we notice everything around us and we feel that weight I'm not saying that it gives me the ability to see the world through the eyes of someone who's a person of color because I'm white or someone who's uh, a, a woman for instance or someone who's disabled or whatever but I think it gives me at least an idea of what a lot of other people might be going through and as educators if we, we're not setting out to try and improve the lives of everybody, not just people who are like us, then really I think people need to question why, that word again, why they're in education in the first place.
2: I'm such a crier. I just cry at every episode we do. <laughs> um, David, thank you so much for your time today. Um, one of the things that you said earlier really stood out to me when you said that teachers are paid to think and Mm -hmm. what's been really clear in our conversation today is how much you do think um, you you really think about the purpose of education and the role of educators and what your why is in education that mission to make sure that no one goes through what you did in school and and back to that school value of being yourself and that's for people who are like you to be able to be themselves but it's also for everyone to be able to be themselves and I think if schools can focus on that what that does is it frees their teachers but it also frees their students and ultimately it improves education and makes it a safer place and something that is more accessible for all people David thank you for your time
1: Joe, I feel like all schools should play that conversation to their staff as like a CPD session after school or something. There was so much like practical advice in there, some real specific strategies and things people could do, some new ways of thinking. I think that was that was a really rich conversation.
2: It was really good. And I I, I always come away from these conversations with a few things that I need to sit down and think about. And I've actually come away with like a whole page of notes of things that I want to research more and look into more. David is really such a deep thinker about education. And that really came through in the conversation today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, in terms of those practical resources, uh, the FRRER model is a great thing that all subjects can use, whether primary or secondary. And what we'll do is we'll share the Queer Knowledge Organiser on Twitter and in our show notes. But that's a great resource as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd be really grateful if you could leave
2: a review or a five star rating. This really helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation or comment on this week's episode, you can find us on Twitter at PrideProgress. Thanks for listening.